Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Afghanistan, 2010, a land ravaged by a brutal history of insurgency and tribal infighting. For Australian Special Forces Officer Matt Ricks, time is running out to capture or kill a high-value Taliban target. This is both the premise of the debut novel of new Australian author Bram Connolly and also what he used to do for a living. In a 20-year military career, Bram served for more than 15 with Australia's Special Forces, including two deployments to the Badlands of Afghanistan, and for which he received the Distinguished Service Medal for Leadership in Battle. With the launch of his first novel, The Fighting Season, he now follows in the bootsteps of authors and former SAS operatives Andy McNabb, Chris Ryan and Sir Renal Fiennes to establish himself very quickly as a dynamic new voice in the action fiction genre. Hello, Bram. Hi, James. That was an awesome introduction. Thanks. You joined the army at 17. Mm-hmm. And what was it that drove you to want to move from, say, your first deployment to Somalia into the commando unit at mm. about 19 mm. and then push on from there? No, I was a little bit older than that when I left uh, Townsville. And I, I left Townsville to go to 4 hour when it was reformed. It was, it was, they had a thing back then. I think it was a tropical relief program. So I'd done five years and had uh, uh, dengue fever or something like that where they decided that they would, they would you know, post me out of the unit. So I, I was a, a lance corporal, went to four hour and then it re-rolled uh, the year after I got there into a commando unit. Now, I think we had an 80% attrition rate or something like that of the guys that were there that, that, that managed to pass the course. Mm. Um, and then we just built it from there. So I was, I was really fortunate I was in the right place at the right time. It, it, um, and I had aspirations to, to go to special forces, but it sort of it got served up to me rather than me looking for it, to be what, honest. What do you think it gave you, though, at that time? Um, sense of purpose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just in the army. And then suddenly I was doing something quite difficult and challenged. And then, you know, I would see that uh, that really did create um, my personality in some regards. And then and I strive to be challenged, and I still do to this day, and I think it's because of, because of those opportunities. So, Bram, what is it that drove you to tell this story? Well, I see, I see storytelling um, through the medium of fiction is probably the best way to convey to the general public um, exactly what it's like to be in combat without, without being there. And I think that by using this story as a vehicle, I'm able to take the reader and immerse them in that, uh, in that type of scenario. And then, uh, you know, it's one of the joys of fiction is that you can, you can write something in a, in a place and time and take someone there um, in their imagination. There's a real sharpness to the battle scenes themselves. What was it like to write those scenes, given that in many ways, and there is a big blend of fact and fiction here, mm. that you have lived them? Well, that's a great question. It was a very cathartic experience, um, being able to uh, sit in front of a computer and, and come up with these scenarios that fitted um, the scenes in the book. And yeah, I mean, quite rightly, some of them are my personal experiences and then, and then some of them are imagined of what I, what I thought it would be like for other people in the stories that I heard in, 
in the officer's mess about things that other guys have been through. So um, I think they are realistic. Um, and I, I tried to portray those battle scenes as accurately as I, as I could. It does seem to be a real blurring of lines at times between the fact or fiction. Is that just because it's for the first one out the gate, it's right what you know? Um, I think I'm going to try and stick in, in, in that genre, in that historical moment, um, and, and write those battle scenes um, as accurately as I can. But where I, where I see the imagination coming into it is uh, on the receiving end with, with the Taliban and what they must have been feeling uh, when we were unleashing on, on them. And then, you know, vice versa, I, I know what it's like to be on the receiving end, and that's how I was able to, to, to do that, to, to draw those descriptive elements into, into those combat scenes. Well, there seems to be quite a lot of respect for how the Taliban handled their relationships with each other, for the culture, more mm. so than the individuals, shall mm. we say. Yeah, it's, it, was a, it was a tough one because I wanted to balance, I really wanted to balance the Taliban as a formidable fighting force, because they were, while at the same time, um, you know, I'm not about bashing another, another culture's, uh, you know, shared norms, um, because that's not what we were there to do. Um, so I, I really, it was a real fine line for me. And I also wanted to make a little bit of an anti-hero out of Faisal Khan because I, I see him in follow-on book or books being someone that, uh, an, an enemy or an adversary that we can relate to. Yeah. How, how much of your thinking goes into where these characters might go after the first book as you're writing? Yeah, I, I always had my eye on continuing Matt Rick's uh, in a series Um because I, I see Australia in, in real need of an Australian action hero and maybe the world needing an Australian action hero because they're, yeah, it's a, it's a, different, um, it's a different person than an American or a British, you know, action hero. It's, it's someone with a little bit different values and morals. And um, so, so the people around him, Steph Bormer as well, um, you know, I'm going to carry them over in subsequent books and there'll be some surprises coming, yeah. Well, Matt Ricks, I mean, that sensibility is defined very much by a sense of humour, and it's quite dark at times as well, and yeah. certainly JJ, his offsider. Right. Um, but at the same time, I, I must say I was personally surprised that Matt Ricks is actually not the most suave kind of guy with women. Right, so... I mean, how disappointing is this for the Australian hero? And yes. You've made him almost you know, gobsmacked around women. Yeah, and I think the new generation of commandos that are coming through are pretty pretty confident around the, the women, probably <laughs> probably not so much um, my generation. Because, you know, and, and, and Matt Ricks is based on a lot of the officers that I've served with and some of their really good um, points. But many of the um, oh, many of the things that are, are weaknesses in, in Matt Ricks are based on mine personally, and that's, that's because it's easier for me to, you know, pinpoint those weaknesses and, and talk about them in myself. Um, and, I, and I think I was pro probably pretty uh, um, non, not confident. <laughs> and so that comes across in Matt. But also Matt's, Matt's one of those guys who, um, in, in the way that I've built the character, is one of those guys who is all about the job and, and he, he has, he has that, that same sort of uh, the way about him that you would expect of a guy who's worked in a male-dominant um, industry like Special Forces has been for so long and then he's confronted with someone like Ali has no idea how to really play that or is 
girlfriend in Rachel. He just does not know what what to do there or how to how to maintain that relationship. So, well, it is an yeah. extremely masculine novel in many ways, and yeah. uh, there are only I think three women mm. within the book. So, did you find it difficult to to find their voices to make them stand out in some ways from I, the men? I really enjoyed creating Steph Bormer as a character, I, I, and I know, I know girls like like her through the Defence Force who are who are very strong, capable women and, you know, are, are brilliant at what they do. So that wasn't so hard for me to be able to then turn her into a CIA agent. Um, I found Ali difficult to, to, to describe that um, sexuality that she had um, without coming across as a creep, to be fair. <laughs> um, so that was a difficult thing for me, actually, to, to, get, to get that right, to get that balance right, and then um, to not over-sexualise the female characters is something that I'm, I'm really, um, you know, I, I am taking great steps in doing, trying to maintain that professionalism with them. And, you know, I, I, I want the female readers to be able to, um, you know, to respond to the way that Matt um, sees these women and to see them through his eyes as well. Yeah. You almost want Max sorry matt to be better with women as he goes along he's busy (laughs) (laughs) yeah and 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 i think that that will you know i'll I'll continue he'll continue on that journey and and i'll continue on that journey with him to 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 make him you know a little bit a little bit more affable in that way but it's you know again it's an action it's an action book it's not a it's not a love it's not 50 (laughs) it's not 50 shades of fighting season so that's right yeah. yeah One thing that does come out, and I mean, you even preface this in the book with an explanation, but I'd like to hear hear about it again here, which is for dramatic purposes, you've really built up the animosity that seems to exist between the commando regiment mm. and the SAS. Right. And is that real? Uh, no, not not in the not probably in the way that I've depicted it. Um, I'm sure there's individuals who think it is. Uh, what we have to understand is that you have high performing teams, and there's a lot at stake. And there's a certain rivalry that comes with that, especially when the mission sets are quite similar between the two the two units. Um, and now the units are taken from guys of, you know, they're, they're different psychological makeups and they're different cultures, and then they're put together to do a similar mission. Um, so there is there is some I would say rivalry. Now I've I've certainly built that up in the book as a vehicle to show the frustrations that Matt was undergoing and. I didn't have those frustrations really on, on my deployment. Uh, I think the guys that, that I worked with were nothing but professional. And, and I, do, I did preface that at the start of the book that Australia should be very thankful for the way that the two units have conducted themselves you know, on, their, on, on Australians' behalf, really, in Afghanistan. And a lot of those guys you know, have paid huge uh, sacrifices over the years and, and some guys obviously the ultimate sacrifice. So I wanted to be to be careful with with how I played that and how and how I wrote about that, um, but you know I think that if any if any young Australians are reading that book and they and they are any, you know they want to join special forces, there's a great you know special forces direct recruiting uh, you know system that they could go and they could go and have a look at. Well, that raises a good question um, in regards to a moment in the book, which which really could be termed as the I'm Spartacus moment <laughs> during the selection course that Matt flashes back to of getting into commando and uh, it what it seems to be is that it's driven to provoke a team environment and an understanding they need to stand up for each other is that taken directly from your own process of both going through (laughs) recruitment and also being a selector weren't you yes yeah yeah i I was for for a time um that that story is loosely based on fact 
um, something like that may or may not have occurred and I may or may not have witnessed it and thought it was excellent. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny yeah, such I, 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 I like the question. And, uh, you know, I saw some really uh, amazing... Uh, you see some of the most amazing things when you watch those selection courses. Um, and mind games like that, the, the guys aren't capable of processing those mind games. So something as simple as whose dog tags were left at the bottom of the pool... You know, and every no one knows because no one's got their dog tags on them because they've handed them all in. So no one knows what the yes. that it was them or not them. And they're so tired and beaten down that people will just start. You know, if you start putting them through push-ups for an hour or burpees for an hour or something like that, someone will own up for the for the good of the team. And then there's all these other mind games that go with it. But um, you know, there's it's it's come a long way the selection since then, and it's it's a lot more scientific in its approach. But back in the day when I did it, it was brutal. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I had to vent. <laughs> yeah. Well, it does seem to be that, I mean, there, there must be a reliance on commandos and SAS regiment that they have to dig deep. There seems to be something inherent within the individuals because it is such a tough selection process, yeah. but it also is tough to stay in there yeah. as well. Yeah, daily renewable contract was something that uh, one of my OCs used to, used to throw around a lot and, I, and, it, and it really resonates with me. Um, you, you really have to be honest with yourself. Uh, I, I look back now and, you know, I, I mean, I'm in probably the best physical shape I've been in years, but I, I wouldn't be able to match it with, with a lot of those young guys in the regiment uh, and two commando regiment and SASR now, um, nor the weapon handling, you know, probably nor the intelligence. You know, they, they, you, just, you just get old and need to go and do something else. But, yeah, you do, those guys do need to be able to dig deep. They, they need to be able to work for long periods in small teams, in arduous environments, um, carrying out really complex tasks. And the way, to, the way to get guys, the way to find guys to be able to do that is to have a robust um, selection you know, criteria to meet and then put those guys under job conditions. And, and I think that the Australian Special Forces is testament to how good that selection process is. There's a quote from Sergeant Paul Cale, who I know, who you know, who has implemented a hand-to-hand -hand combat training um, program both in Australia and overseas. And one of his lines was that people don't rise to the occasion, they sink to their training. Is, yeah. would, would you agree with that in the sense that that's why you're put through these extraordinary... Has Paul coined that as his own, has he? Oh, that's good. I, that's, I don't know if he's stolen it, but I've stolen it from him it's in this it's, context. It's brilliant, isn't it, in its simplicity? And, and it is true. Paul's exactly right. Um, people do fall back to their, to their level of training. But, you know, I have, I'm a little bit more spiritual in, in the way I look at these things as well. I've seen guys who, you know, are, are mediocre. They're good enough to pass selection, but they're, 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 they're exemplary Australians, but they're, they're maybe not as brilliant as a few other guys. But I've seen those guys rise when it counts and one guy can turn the tide of a battle um yeah so depending on what sort of day you're having um so yeah I, I do agree with paul that you have to have a tough selection criteria and guys do fall back to that level of training but i also see sometimes i see that uh, that whole anzac thing come out and i see i see australians you know i see those some of those young commandos they they just you know they just go for it and everything changes because of their actions so yeah is life, now that you're out of the army, is it in some ways easier because you have overcome such enormous challenges in your previous career? I, I often talk about this separation anxiety disorder. Guys, guys get out from high-performing teams and they find it hard to then have a sense of purpose. Um, and I think that needs to be managed quite, quite diligently. I, I 
uh, I personally find that what I went through in Special Forces set me up to be able to, to face that challenge. The hardest challenge that I've faced has been leaving defence. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've, so I've, making the decision or actually moving on from there? I made the decision based on, you know, probably emotional um, an emotional decision at the time because I just had enough. I was tired. Um, dual deployments almost back-to-back and a year on the National Counterterrorism Team in between the two. Um, and I was just – I just needed a break. In in hindsight, I could have taken a year leave without pay and then, and then I'd still be going strong now. But but I made that decision at the time. It's one I'm happy with now. Um, but my experiences and training prior to that had really helped me to to be able to get out to be, able to, to be able to get out and assimilate into society because you are institutionalised after a 20-year career. And unless you, unless you actually look at that and identify that for what it is, um, you'll be you know, floundering around in society. Well, you're essentially moving away from one very contained community mm. and opening yourself up to the rest of the world. Mm. Is, that, is there a cognitive dissonance for you? Do you sort of just mm. walk around and go, why do you care about reality TV? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, every. I mean, I had no. I had that after Somalia. Right. We came back from Somalia, and we had this four or five month at the time trip, and we didn't have mobile phones or anything back then. There was no Facebook or any of that sort of stuff to be addicted to. And this is following a period of significant genocide and act- activities and all sorts of things in Somalia, isn't it? Uh, no, that was that was probably more. At, uh, Rwanda is probably sorry. Yeah, so Somalia was. Um, pr- prior to us being there, there was mass starvation. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, we were part of that. Um, and remember, as a, as a 19-year-old Ford Scout in Bravo Company 1RR, you, you were there. You're there because your section's going. You're right. not there for any great, you know, greater good. But um, other than that, you're, all your mates are going there and, and, you know, that's why you're going. So that's why I went. But, um, you know, what a, what, a, what a great experience. And then... To come back, I remember, I remember coming back going, well, there's all these uni students in Townsville out drinking. They've got no idea what's going on in the world. <laughs> you know? I mean, really, did they care? Did I care? I, mean, I look back on that now and, re- and then I realised that, you know, I, I could go to, to somewhere like Somalia and have huge contacts that lasted for days, you know, days on end. Every time we went outside the wire, it felt like we'd, we'd lost a vehicle to an IED strike or, you know, we, we were in a big contact that was, you know, every one of those contacts is life-changing. But and, then and just to clarify yeah, yeah. for those listening, contact is a is a battle. Yeah. So so every I would say every day that we went outside the wire, if if there wasn't the prospect of being shot at, we were shot at. Yeah. You know, and and sometimes that's a great relief actually, um, because it's it's what you do. It's the business that you're in. You're ready to you're ready to do it. And then and then you know we might go out there to deliver food aid and to take medical supplies to a village, but you're out there knowing that the Taliban want to fight you. And, so, and actually, deep down, you probably want to fight them as well. It's what we do. Yeah, that's what you're geared up to. You are extremely tightly wound springs for yeah. a very specific purpose. Right. It's it's yeah. And within the within the context of the mission, you're there to fight, um, or you're there to you know to create peace through having the Afghani's manage their own affairs, which is something that we took great pride in doing. But I remember coming back from from Afghanistan and not worrying about it anymore. I wasn't worried about what the general population thought about it because I'd been through that with Somalia and I'd been through it the you know with Timor twice and it just now, now it's a now it's a really specific job for me. Yeah. Coming back to the book and and you made mention of understanding the Afghani people, you 
give quite a bit of time to the ANA um, and their role serving with the mm. Australian forces. Um, what was that experience like for you? I mean, the ANA is the Afghani National Army who mm. were being trained at that time in 2010 mm. um, because, of course, the deployment, original deployment in 2001 after the September 11 attacks was to take on al-Qaeda. Mm. That sort of wrapped up within about two years and then Australia was brought back in 2005 right. and subsequently was to address the insurgency of the Taliban and rebuild a... a a government essentially mm, so mm. you're you're you know you were there at a time of restructure but your role was really to move the insurgents along what what was the role of the ANA and what was your relationship with them like well on my second deployment so 2010 as a platoon commander it was um really it was still embryonic in in raising that capability and I probably didn't give it anywhere near as much focus as I could have and 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 the focus that guys were made to give it in future years. Um, having said that, uh, I had some, some great soldiers in my platoon who, who did a really sterling job with the small Afghan partner force that we had. Uh, now, one of the things that we found is, you know, a Afghan face, Afghan voice, first point of contact for the villagers was, was what we were trying to, to do mostly. Um, and that, that would sometimes put us in a little bit of danger. But at the same time, it allowed us to show, you know, the, the, the sovereignty of the Afghan National Army and to be able to have those guys interacting with the local population. Um, I, I enjoyed working with some of the guys that I worked with. I found them a challenge. We couldn't, I couldn't speak the language. I had an interpreter. He couldn't speak the language either. Um, it just <laughs> that, seemed... That, sorry, that seems to question the validity of the title interpreter. Yeah, I mean, I had an amazing platoon. A lot of my guys could speak... Uh, Pashtu, but some of the some of the guys that we worked with came from different regions, and and we found it really difficult to communicate with them. So, so there's regional dialects throughout the various provinces. Yeah, and sections. Right. Yeah, um, it was it was complex. Uh, yeah, to say the least. And I do mention it in the book, and I, I do I go to pains to show the frustrations that we had, and certainly to be to be drawn in and have you know to, to be drawn in and have. Uh, a meal with them right in the middle of we have to go. That's right. <laughs> but you know you can't. You can't. Well, well that's, that's the thing I was going to raise. Matt, um, Matt is trying to move his team out of a, an area. The Taliban are on their way, and the ANA are having dinner. Right, and that's not unusual. And there's, I think, every platoon commander from two commando regiment would be able to, you know, really look at that piece of writing and go, "Yep." <laughs> I, I've been through that because we all we all had to we all had to you know sometimes you've got a great plan in place but that plan gets brought unstuck because it's not your country and if the Afghan National Army say hey we want to stay here you know or the police for that matter if we want to stay here and we want to do this you've got two options you can be you can be that guy with a big stick saying let's go and and wreck everything or you can say yeah okay let's let's support what you're trying because sometimes they are trying to achieve something you don't know about it was a, it was a, it's a complex job and which is again why I come back to you know that that separation anxiety that guys get because you're in a complex job especially as a platoon commander a platoon sergeant team commander with a with a lot of responsibility and then you leave the army and now you're some guy on the street yeah you know? yeah so anyway lots to think about <laughs> Strategic corporal. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've based Matt within Yankee platoon mm. throughout the book. Mm. 
you led Yankee Platoon. Mm. There, there, there is no, there is no changing of names in this position. No. Um, have you actually contacted or heard any feedback from the guys from Yankee Platoon who you serve with? Have, have they had the chance to read the book? I've had a, I've had a few interesting uh, messages from the guys and the ones that have read the book. Um, po- positive. Yep. And, you know, it's, it's fiction. They know it's fiction. I haven't tried to rewrite history. They also know that some of it's based on, you know, my own experiences from how I saw it at the time. But, um, you know, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay with this for subsequent books as well. I, I want to be able to write that, you know, in the historical moment, but have fictitious characters doing their business so that I can explain in some ways how things happen without having to go and write a non-fiction account or my own, you know, as amazing as apparently it would be, you know, my own biography. Because every, every SF guy's got a great biography, to be fair. So, yeah, so... You know, I mean, I think George McDonald Fraser does it pretty well in uh, in the Flashman series. I mean, it's you know, it's it's there. It's some of it's historically correct, and then you've got this swashbuckling twit running around doing all this stuff, which is not what Matt Ricks is, yeah. or what I was. But um, definitely, definitely want to want to be able to take that character into historical places, and and I want people to question, you know, is that real? And you mentioned Renau Fines before. Mm. Sir and Alphonse, and uh, he wrote a great book called The Feathermen. Yes, which caused all sorts of merry hell throughout right. the literature world and media. Yeah. Um, was it real? Was it not real? That's right. You know, we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, one of the world's greatest adventurers, but certainly also, obviously, one of the greatest tormentors yeah. in the media when he went out there and told the story. Yeah. Um, which it's a was, great book. And was remade uh, as a not so great film. Yeah. It was a series or a film? No, yeah, it was a film, film wasn't it? Yeah. Elite Force for. Um, He's. Um, He's actually a really good writer, I think. He wrote mm. he wrote another one called The Set about badgers and badger hunters and you know all these uh, all these Cockney English people, gangsters and stuff. It was pretty good too. Who do you read? I mean, obviously um, mm. to write, mm. the suggestion is you need to read a lot, and you've got to write a lot. Yeah, so, I'd agree who with do that. you read? Um, well, he's going back in time, Combat and Survival magazine when I was a kid, <laughs> judiciously every month. And then moving on from that, I think the first book that I that I ever read was uh, Ivanhoe by uh, Sir Walter Scott. Um, Just thought you'd start simple? Uh, I don't know. I was given it as a gift and for one Christmas, and, and I read it, and I really liked it. And I think that was the point where I realised that an author could take a reader into into a story and give them give them some experiences. You know, um, moving on from that, when I was when I was in well, in high school, uh, there was the George Orwell classic, 1984. Um, I think prior to that was Animal Farm. And again, they were really interesting books for me because they were, you know, they were metaphors for things that I really didn't have at that point the understanding of what they were, but I knew there was something going on in the background for both those books. Um, Jack London's Call of the Wild comes to mind. I think that's a beautiful um, portrayal of you know the way he characterizes the the animal in that you know the dog in that and and then takes him takes him through a journey is 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 a great uh, piece of writing and then in the military you know i spent years reading uh i don't know if you've ever heard of robert g barrett and yes. the les norton series i mean you could just chuck that in the bottom of a pack and walk away and um you know and and, and chuck it at, and you know he'd get it out when you had many of the moments where he sat around waiting for stuff to happen which happens a lot in the army. There's a lot of that hurry up and wait. Yeah, hurry up and wait. So I pull a book out. Right. Um, so I was pretty reasonably well read, and then I moved. I moved on from that and started reading the James Bond, 
you know, books. Um, yeah, and and then there was uh, there was books that everyone has read in the military. Chicken Hawk. I mean, I can fly a Huey. I'm right. sure of it. It's that it's that well written. Um, you know, Carlos Hathcock, uh, Marine Sniper, and then you know, moving on through into the into the, into the later years, things like uh, On Killing and On Combat, which probably less fiction, you know. Um, yeah, which is really a, a, a deep, well, one individual, and I've just forgotten his name. Lieutenant, but, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grosman. Dave Grosman, yeah, yeah, which is more a psychological study or an analysis of what it takes to kill and how you recover from right. that. Right, I, can't, I can't, cannot sell that hard enough how, how you, if you read something like that and analyse it and then implement that training, um, how it immunises the platoon, it immunises the guys in combat um, to a certain degree. I mean, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I don't, I don't make that claim, but I certainly did a lot of study on that. Um, another another um, commando officer got me onto that and said, hey, you should read this stuff, and I did, and I, I thought it was brilliant, and it certainly set us up for success. Well, there's an element of that within the book itself mm. where the guys finish a particular sortie and, and have to – they talk about decompressing, mm. and that decompression after a battle, some of them go to the gym, mm. um, others find other ways. Some of them are just – you know, you, there's one moment where Matt calms his, his hands mm. through breathing. Mm. Um I mean, obviously, this is something that you've experienced yourself. Mm, mm. But but there's one which I want to touch on, which is there is a funeral within mm. the story. Yeah. And there's a moment where Matt turns to his um, second in command mm. and essentially says, you know, we need to put them straight back into training tomorrow mm. because we need to shake them out from feeling sorry for themselves. Yeah, tough, isn't it? Yeah, and, and how critical is that? And is that what you had to do? Well... Unfortunately, that that whole funeral aspect has been experienced by by a lot of us in Afghanistan in 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 four hour commando and two commando regiment. So so I've been to a few of those and I know how they work. Unfortunately, um, and the guys they I think they pay homage best by getting back on the tools, um, by getting back you know, by getting back into training and getting their minds focused and thinking about the reasons they're there. Because if you, if you take your, your eye off the ball over there, to use an analogy, um, you can be found wanting very quickly. Um, so I do think there is a small bit of psychology in that. It's probably not as, as much as I've made out in the book. I think that the thing that needs to be really considered uh, in combat and in, and in stressful situations is the debriefing afterwards and you know, making guys understand that the actions that they took um, probably saved their lives even if they had to take another, um, which is what guys later on in life have problems with. But I, th I think that that's probably more pertinent than getting straight back into training. Although, having said that, the old, you know, the old adage, get back on the horse, probably, probably rings true. Mm. There's also another moment within the book, and this is where you'll probably want to tread that fine line between what you want to say and what you really feel, mm. which is Matt at times has a difficult relationship with authority. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and, and, there's, and specifically because the book actually raises the question of what is the cost mm. of acting in the interest of the greater good? Right. Yeah, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to uh, toe a fine line with this. I, I've had some brilliant um, officers in command and commanding officers, and you know, I've, I've I've not had to experience a commanding officer like the one that I portrayed in in that book. Um, Matt had a problem with him 
the commanding officer in that book is never named because I, I don't want to make a false name and then have someone say, oh, that rhymes with that or that could be that or yeah. this could be who because the, the guy just didn't exist. Mm. The Royal Military College and ADFA prior to that and then Staff College, you know, all these things that we've got set in place in the Australian military produces brilliant leaders, to be fair. But I wanted a vehicle of frustration and that was how I got it. And this is the thing. You, in fiction, you have to have drama. Right. And he has to have something to push against. And yeah. if everybody else in his platoon loves him, right. well, then he's got to have someone who just feels the other yeah. way. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, I mean, we all have problems with authority at times, especially when you don't exactly know why it is that you're doing something. Um, you know, I was fairly lucky that I could, I could always question that authority in, in, a, in a roundabout sort of way because of my personality and the personality of the, the officers that I worked with. Um, yeah, but, I, but as I said, it, especially with pertaining to the CO, I wanted to make sure that there was a, a friction there at play for Matt to contend with, um, you know, and, and, it, and it rallies people. It rallied his troop together, as you sort of rallied his platoon together. And yeah. And it also, if, if Matt's going to continue, he's always got him out there as well. Right, yeah. Well, I mean... There would be people out there that would come back to haunt you. <laughs> and perhaps, yeah, you've, unfortunately, you've gone there. I was hoping you wouldn't. You might letting, letting cats out of the bag. <laughs> um, there's a moment in the book where Matt mm. states that command is a lonely business, or he thinks to himself that command is a lonely business. Mm. Is that something you found, I mean, when you were leading mm. in that last tour of Afghanistan? Mm-mm. That's, yeah, not so much. So, so. M- my background is that I went through the ranks. So, so when I was a sergeant, I was in. Uh, I applied for the Army Senior Warrant, Warrant Officer Commissioning Scheme, or Sergeant Warrant Officer Commissioning Scheme, and I was successful. Um, which meant that the guys I was a sergeant with now saw me as an officer, and the officers that I worked with now saw me as a sergeant wearing a captain rank. So, so I was quite lonely for a few years there while I proved myself. Because you are caught in that mid, I was, I was definitely caught yeah. in the middle. But, um, you know, I started to be accepted by the, the officers about, about three years into my six years as a captain, and, which was nice. That was good, mm. you know. And I had a really great OC, uh, officer in command, on my first trip who never treated me like anything but a, an officer. So that was a, a great um, experience for me, and it certainly – uh, gave me a lot of confidence. And over time, the, 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 the sergeants either left or they got promoted to warrant officer and stopped caring about me. Um, but my platoon in Afghanistan were very tight and, and I never felt lonely over there. Um, but command is lonely more because of the decisions you have to make, mm. um, less about the guys around you. And I, I think I tried to show that with you know, Matt coming into the common room after the assault the night before on the vehicle yard and, and the the guys are part of one team, and but he is slightly higher above them, away from them. So he's he's part of them, but he's also he's also not. So you know, I mean, as an officer, you I should eat after the other guys eat. You know, you worry about their welfare first. You know, a good officer will generally make sure that all the guys are taken care of, and then worry about himself. And you know, it takes a special special guy to do that. I think, and it's something that I found difficult, and I know that Matt Ricks found difficult at times, as you saw. He, I mean, he stands very much on his own significantly, Mm. except for JJ, who Mm. seems to be a character you genuinely enjoyed writing. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I mean, JJ was a mix of of platoon sergeants that I'd had over the years and characters based loosely and not so loosely on some of them. 
and um, yeah, he's a, he's a great character. And you know, all of the all of the really successful platoon commanders generally have a brilliant senior NCO behind them, and that was the case in in this regard. He, he's he's something else, isn't he? So, what's your process when you write? Now that mm. you, you and we will come to to mm. finish off with um why you're writing as well. But what mm. is your process when you're writing? Um, it's, yeah, it's strange. So inspiration comes to me at the weirdest times. Generally, you know, while I'm swimming or in the shower or doing something where I can't write it down. Almost. <laughs> almost <laughs> always water. The, the mundane and the yeah. wet. Together. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, so what I do is I, I, what I did do for this first book and I, I'm doing for the second book is I, I get an Excel spreadsheet and I, I write down the, the plot uh, line by line by chapter. Um, and then I go through um, trying to understand the story myself and, and make that as complex as it needs to be. Uh, then what I do is I, I, I get a, uh, you know, a, a Word, Microsoft Word document open and I title it Chapter 1 <laughs> and I put down the first word and then I keep going until I've finished. But what, I've, what I have found that I that have to do, and I'm, I'm interested to know whether other authors do this, is there's no point writing a fight scene if I'm feeling loving and there's no point writing a love scene if I'm feeling violent. So I, I tend to go and... You know, whatever I'm feeling on that day is I'll look at the chapters in in the in the Excel spreadsheet and the, and the lines that correlate with how I'm feeling, and I'll go in and write that that chapter. Really? So you you equate your personal state mm. with what you're going to write? At yeah, that time. I absolutely do. And do you forewarn your wife? Uh, yeah, she's <laughs> she's pretty good at reading over the over the over them at the end and telling me if they're good or not. Um, no, I mean I'm not. I, you know, I just see it as it's an outlet, and if if I'm feeling like I want to you know, transport myself to Egypt, you know, you know, for instance, then I'll write that chapter and, and reminisce about what the bay looks like and the boats and, the, you know, and then, I'll, and then I'll write the scene. But if I'm also feeling like, oh, I really, I remember that, uh, I remember some day in particular, some combat scene or, or whatever, and there was this time we were up in a valley and, you know, and we, we, we put a whole lot of mortars down range and got shot at and shot back and, you know, then I'll go and write that scene and, and, it, and it, I think it becomes more genuine, to be fair. Because you're feeling it as opposed to just following process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I might go back and, and flower up some of the language a little bit or I might take some stuff out of it. And I certainly, you know, I was feeling quite melancholy when I wrote the, um, when I wrote the scenes for the, for the funeral. Mm. And I think that comes through. I'm pretty proud of that. And, and, you know, we had a notification chapter as well and it was really quite uh, – I. I felt, and a few other people felt like it was too intrusive on things that had actually happened in real life. So we took it out, um, you know, or what it was, what it was meant to be. Um, yeah, and so I, I feel like if it, that's why it's such a cathartic process, I can actually go and write about something I'm feeling at the time, and it's yeah, it's great. Well, the Australian Army has just started to introduce um, a couple of different courses, which includes creative writing mm, for people as an outlet for post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. So what you're, what you're saying also makes perfect sense within, mm. although I'm not saying you have PTSD, mm. um, but it makes sense that mm. people are provided with an outlet that is safe, that allows them to express it in their own words, whether they do anything with it or not. Yeah. Um, so that's why I was also intrigued by what any of your former colleagues mm. um, thought. Like when they re when they read it, did they did it take them back? Did they push them forward or? Yeah, I, you know, trigger warning. I mean, it's not. There is parts in there that would yeah. be difficult for some people to read if they're that way, you know, predisposed. 
Yeah. Um, but no, I haven't had that feedback from, from those, uh, from guys in the platoon. Um, but I know other guys that have found it tough to read it. Um, just like anyone who's been in a car crash will be finding it difficult to read those scenes yeah. or, or see a Jason Bourne film from right. anyways, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. How good are they? Oh, they're great. <laughs> so good. Uh, so the Someone final... needs to keep writing them That's too, it. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a pitch. Yeah. Um, final question. It's probably the first question you actually usually get, which is you finish off a brilliant career of 20 mm. years in the military mm. and you pick up pen mm. and start writing and have decided to become an author. Right. So therefore, what provoked you? And what, what moment did you think, actually, I can do this? So, um, you know, I know Chris Masters. Um, there's, a, there's a chapter about my career in his book, Uncommon Soldier. Um, I met his publisher through Chris. And she, we played with the idea of the biography, but it's not, it's not my thing. I'm not that narcissistic. Um, is that narcissistic saying you're not narcissistic maybe that's narcissistic <laughs> but um, we, we had a few discussions over email and then I thought to myself uh, you know there, there is no there is no true Australian action hero Andy McNabb and Chris Ryan write these and they write pretty good books I think and they and they sell them on the Australian market and yet I think that a lot of those people could be reading something about an Australian special forces guy and not necessarily a British SAS guy and there is a gap. There is a definite gap in the market for that. For a, for a true, authentic guy from special forces to be writing what you know the readership want, and we discussed that, and and they gave me a contract, and then I wrote the book. Wow. Yeah. Um, I know how very very fortunate I've been with Alan and Unwin um, for them to take a gamble on me the way they have. Uh, I also I also know that the branding that we're you know that I'm undertaking is about. You know, great. You want to you want to talk about modern combat? Come talk to me. There's no need to talk to Chris Ryan or Andy McNabb, who, you know, they've been off the tools for twenty years. Twenty years, yeah. You know, and and I have contemporary experiences, and I have a network of people I can draw on. I know about the weapons, I know about the tactics, I know about the procedures, I know about the explosives, I know about the aircraft. We go on and on and on, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna write about that, and I'm and I'm gonna I'm gonna make Matt Ricks into Australia's next or the Australian action hero, and someone in Hollywood <laughs> hopefully will turn him into Jason Bourne. But um, no, seriously, though, it's, it's about time we had an Australian voice in this, in this you know, genre. Graham, I can't think of any better way to, to end our interview with them with <laughs> Thanks, that James. pitch, absolutely. So thank you so yeah. much for, for making the time to come in. Mm. And, of course, there's another book on the way, mm -hmm. and yeah. then we look forward to many more after that. Uh, I've, I've got a three-year glide path proof of concept to make sure that this is workable. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll have three books out in three years. And then let's, you know, let's see where we go from there. But yeah, thanks very much, James. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Brad. Thanks. And The Finding Season is available online and in all good bookstores. You can also follow Bram on Twitter at at Bram Connolly and on Facebook. You can also follow us at Conversations WW. This has been James Ricards. Thank you so much for listening.